Isn't it great to have the choir and orchestra back? Wow, great music, great music. You know, Cody said the very first week of this series entitled To the Point, he said, you are responsible for what you know. You are responsible for what you know. J. Oswald Sanders, in his book entitled In Pursuit of Maturity, he writes, spiritual maturity is not automatic as a result of the mastery of scriptural teachings. Of course, that is an essential element in attaining maturity, but of itself, it cannot produce maturity. The accumulation of biblical information is of immense value, but it is only as the principles of Scripture are worked out in daily obedience that spiritual growth is advanced. Bible study can be largely an intellectual exercise that leaves the life unchanged. There is a necessity of an intellectual component in this pursuit, but it is fruitful only if it results in increased likeness to Christ. Sincere moral effort and dependence on the Holy Spirit is involved. Notice what Sanders says here. It says, maturity in the Christian life is linked to dependence upon the Holy Spirit, obedience to the word of God, and time. It's interesting that uh, Sanders goes on to say that spiritual maturity is not linked to the aging process. In other words, gray hairs and spiritual maturity are not necessarily equated. Spiritual maturity is not instantaneous and final. In other words, growth towards the spiritual maturity takes place over time and involves some responsibility on our part. He says spiritual maturity is not trying to, in your own power, trying to copy Christ. I love what he says. He says, the steps of the master are too majestic for unaided or unregenerate people to follow. In other words, the necessity upon the Holy Spirit brings about, and dependence upon the Holy Spirit brings about maturity. And spiritual maturity is not just the mere possession of some spiritual gift. So let me ask you a question. How did you become mature in your faith? You know, spiritual maturity happens as we are dependent upon the Holy Spirit, obedient to his word over a period of time. And I would suggest that spiritual maturity, your spiritual maturity, was a process wherever you are when you first took that step to accept that responsibility to be obedient to what Scripture has to say. To understand that you are, as Cody said the very first word, you are responsible for what you know. To be able to grow in your faith, you realize that you needed to confront the responsibilities head on. You take on more and more responsibilities as a believer, and you continue to stretch yourself and continue to grow yourself in maturity as you're dependent upon the 
Christ to step out into areas where you are not naturally equipped. I suggest that the process of spiritual growth is enhanced when you step out and take responsibilities for your actions as a follower of Jesus Christ. And make no mistake about it, that our responsibility that we have to be able to share the good news about Jesus Christ in this generation is one of the greatest blessings that God has given us to us as believers today. While the world is trying, out, trying to figure out exactly what they want to say, we have that responsibility to be able to take what God has already said to a lost world. Christianity is enshrined in the life. It is proclaimed with the lips. In our passage today, Jesus gets to the point of the point, the culmination of the series, and talks about our responsibility in light of the coming kingdom. He says, what is that responsibility? What are we to talk about? Well, turn, if you will, to Matthew chapter 13, if you haven't already in your Bibles. Matthew chapter 13, where we are going to look at two verses. You remember that Matthew writes to prove to his Jewish readers that Jesus is the Messiah and the promised king. And in Matthew chapters 8 and 9, Jesus performed many miracles that authenticated his message and the messenger and to authenticate that he is the Messiah and the promised king. But in chapter 10, it becomes apparent that the Jews were increasingly rejecting the evidences that he was presenting. So in the postponement and the rejection of the kingdom becomes pretty evident in Matthew chapter 11. And in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus, in some of the most severe language that he has, denounces those cities where he had pronounced or performed most of his miracles. And due to their selfish indifference and religious pride, those people were focused more on their own self rather than upon the Savior. By the end of the chapter, in chapter 11, Jesus closes with an invitation to the individual. And then chapter 12 looks at the religious pride of the nation and specifically the religious pride of the Pharisees. The Pharisees accused Jesus of performing miracles and the power of the devil. They were more concerned with following rules than they were with following Jesus. And by the end of the chapter, Jesus says, true followers of myself will do the will of the Father. Well, with this, that background, Jesus then in chapter 13 is facing the question, all right, what will happen when the rejected king goes back to heaven and the kingdom is postponed until his second coming. And chapter 13 marks a major division in the book where Jesus now begins to talk to his disciples in parables. Parables, you remember, hide truth from some, reveal truth to others. And in Matthew 13, there's eight parables that reveal the mysteries of the kingdom, mysteries of truths that had not been revealed in the Old Testament. And the chapter consists of two sections of four parables each. The first four parables are more to the multitude, and the last four parables are to the disciples. And in each section, one parable really stands out from the others. 
And in the first section, it's the first parable, the parable of the soils. And in the last section, I believe it's this parable, the parable that we're going to look at today. What's our responsibility in light of all of these parables? Well, in verse 51, Jesus really wants his disciples to understand the truth about the kingdom. Notice what he says in verse 51. He says, have you understood all of these things? They said to him, yes. There's a question and an answer. Jesus' question is, is, have you understood all that's been taught about the kingdom? And Jesus now is turning the tables on his disciples, if you notice. All of the other parables up to this point, it says, the kingdom of heaven is like, the kingdom of heaven is like, the kingdom of heaven is like. But now he turns his attention specifically towards his disciples and says, do you understand all of these things? Through these parables, Jesus has been answering the questions, what's going to happen to the kingdom? And the answer is, is that God's kingdom will be established on the earth at Jesus' second coming. Meanwhile, evil and good will coexist. The wicked will go to destruction, but the righteous will continue on into the millennial kingdom where Christ will reign on the throne in the land in direct fulfillment to the promises that God had made to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 and 15. But then Jesus says, have you understood all of these things? Have you understood the parable of the soils? That the condition of one's heart and receptivity to the truth is going to determine the potential for growth. Do you understand that? Do you understand the meaning of the parable of the wheat and the tares that good and evil people will coexist until harvest time when they're separated? Do you understand the parable of the treasure and that the value of participating in the, the kingdom is worth any price, that there's no sacrifice too great for the kingdom. Do you understand that? Do you understand the parable of the, of the net that in light of the judgment that's coming at the end of the age, that our evangelism today should be without discrimination, that God will sort out the, the good from the bad at the end of the age? Do you understand all of this? And notice when he says that, do you understand all of this? He's really tying this last parable back to the very first parable. Because in verse 23, he compares it to the, the good soil. He says, for that which was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. And he's saying to his, his disciples, are you good soil? Have you allowed this to penetrate your heart? Have you allowed this to penetrate your life? Are you good soil? Do you understand? Is your heart really receptive to the truth? Do you understand this? Because you're responsible for what you understand. You're responsible for what you understand. Well, the disciples answer, yes. Yes. We're almost startled at the answer. I mean, it appears to be in some ways naive. Are you kidding me? Without any questions, without any words of explanation, without a single reservation on their part, they respond to Jesus and say, yes, we understand you. Now, the obvious question that comes into my mind is, 
do I believe that the disciples really understood? Well, I don't think that they were being dishonest, but I don't really think that they understood the full ramifications and implications of what Jesus was talking about. They responded that they had heard, at least intellectually, as to what Jesus was saying. But the full implications, I think they were still a little fuzzy. We see that throughout the rest of the book, but I think it becomes clear in chapters 24 and 25 when we get to the Olivet Discourse that they were still a little fuzzy on the specifics. Jesus knew that they had, I think, a limited understanding, but Jesus was really wants his disciples to understand the responsibility, the responsibility that they have in light of the kingdom. Notice what he says in verse 52. He says, and he said to them, Therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. He says, every true scribe is a disciple trained for the kingdom. Jesus is drawing the comparison between a scribe who's instructed in the kingdom and an owner of a house. The scribe is the one who received the instruction about the kingdom, had internalized it. He is like the owner of the house who brings things out of his storehouse, out of his treasures, to use them beneficially for the well-being of those around him. Now, what's surprising here is obviously that he's calling his disciples scribes. This is startling because the scribes were often seen as enemies of Jesus, not really ones that were on his side. If you read back through the Gospels, you know, there were really three classes of people that, that were opposed to our Lord and were constantly throwing obstacles in his path. There were the chief priests, the rulers, i.e. the members of the Sanhedrin, the, the rulers of the council, and then there were the scribes. And these, these people were the ones that came up to him with questions that were designed to try to trick him. They were the ones who constantly tried to stir up the, the people against him. Yet Jesus comes to the close of his teaching with the parables, and he calls his disciples scribes. But you need to remember that scribes did not always have a bad name. Remember that Ezra was a scribe in Ezra chapter 7, verse 6. He was skilled in the law of Moses. And then we read about Ezra in 7.10. We read, for Ezra set his heart to study the law of the Lord, to do it, and to teach his statutes and rules upon Israel. You know, upon the return of the people from captivity, Ezra took the law of Moses and began to explain the law of Moses to the, to the people. And that was the, the beginning of the ministry of scribes. But over a period of time, as happens just about with any type of ministry of preaching or teaching, individuals sneak in who carry on the form of the ministry, but whose words now begin to narrow and became rigid and who offered their own interpretive opinions that were unsupported by the scriptures and which then turned into rules and regulations and rituals, which became legalistic and oppressive. So the scribes who were the authoritative interpreters of the law became a group of legalistic, self-righteous teachers 
The scribes became professionals at spelling out the letter of the law while ignoring the spirit behind him. Things became so bad that the regulations and the traditions of the scribes added to the law became almost more important than the law itself. Man-made traditions overshadowed God's word. And there was a pretense of holiness that kind of took over and replaced a life of true godliness. The original aim of the scribes was good. Jesus says to his disciples, you, you're scribes. You are authoritative interpreters of the word of God trained in the kingdom of heaven. But I think that there's a little bit of a difference here about these scribes. These are a new kind of scribes. They're different a little bit of scribe. The word that's used here in the ESV of the one who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven, that word there for trained is the same word disciple. It's the same word that's used in Matthew chapter 28, verse 19, and could be translated as the New American Standard translates it. Every scribe who has become a disciple of the kingdom of heaven is like. In other words, these were kind of like scribe disciples. Scribes who were disciples of Jesus Christ committed, committed to following him no matter what. Committed followers of Jesus Christ, speaking the word of God in truth and in love. Oh, how we need, desperately need such scribes today. You know, over the years, I've watched a lot of non-Christians looking at Christians and they see nothing but the same miserable problems that they themselves are struggling with, very active within the Christian community. They see Christian homes torn apart by strife and quarreling, fighting. They see marriages split, Christians getting divorced. They look at the Christian community and they see all the same struggles and the heartaches and the loneliness and the prevailings that are happening in our world as much as their world. And they say, what's your message for us? What does it do? Why should we be interested in Jesus? You're not able to navigate any life better, any, any better than we are. And I think that that's the reason that scripture always seems to stress the fact that understanding true Christianity consists of far more than just believing a set of doctrines. And believing a set of doctrines, there's nobody more committed than that than me. But it's also the outworking of what we know in life. It's the application of that into life. And that doesn't happen overnight, but it happens over a period of time as we continue to draw close to Christ, continue to go to the source of life and become mature in our faith. You start with that decision to place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, but that's not the end. That's just the beginning. When you become a Christian, you're introduced to a process that should continue your lifetime as you grow and you continue to grow towards maturity. And we're all in that process. We all are growing more and more mature, but it should be evident that the continual progress is being made. Scribes are disciples of the kingdom. Disciple scribes, true scribes. And every true scribe shares what they understand 
for the benefit of others. Verse 52 says that who has become a disciple of the kingdom is like a householder, a homeowner who takes out of his treasury things new and things old. In some ways, it almost sounds like a garage sale. But I don't think that that's what our Lord had in mind here. The master of the house is the head of the house, the, the authoritative figure. And he's someone who has an abundance, but also a responsibility. He has an abundance and a responsibility to use his resources responsibly to take care of those people around him. And Jesus says that every disciple is like a man who is the head of the home, who is constantly taking out of his resources responsibly new things and old things and putting them together for the benefit of his people. The treasury or the storeroom evidently is the owner's heart, his understanding, the condition of his heart, who had taken in and allowed it to penetrate his his entire soul. He brings out new understanding concerning the kingdom, as well as that old understanding concerning the kingdom. And the new understanding did, did, did not displace the old, but supplemented it. And these parables revealed some new truths that were new to them. They knew, the, they knew about the kingdom over which the Messiah would reign and rule, but they did not know that it was going to be rejected at the time that it was offered. They knew that the kingdom would include righteousness, but they did not know that the period between his rejection and his second coming would be characterized by people both evil and good. This era would have a small beginning, but would blossom into a large group. And once that process began, it couldn't be stopped. And within this era, God is maintaining his people Israel and nurturing his people the church. And this intervening period will end with a time of judgment in which God will separate the wicked from the righteous and the righteous will enter into that new earthly kingdom to rule and to reign with Christ. Some fundamental old truths that just never change because God never changes. Those truths from the Old Testament. The householder is encouraged to take the teaching of both the older and the newer truths of the kingdom and put them together as disciples of the kingdom for the well-being of the people. Jesus was comparing his believing disciples, those who were committed, that they had the responsibility to be able to teach others what they now understood. Every disciple must become a scribe teacher of the law because he understands the things that are required to be able to teach to the people. Must understand the kingdom and share the kingdom. So where does that leave us? I think that leaves us to the point. And I have two points. The first point is this. Understand the message of Jesus personally. Understand the message of Jesus personally. Every scribe must first be a disciple. And to be a disciple, you first have to have a personal relationship with the Savior. 
And that means coming to the place where we realize that we are all sinners. We all fall short of the glory of God. God is holy. We are not. And because of our sin, we have earned eternal separation from God. The penalty for our sin is death, eternal separation from God, and all that is good. But Jesus Christ, 100% God, 100% man, he came, took our sins upon himself. He died in my place. He took my sin upon himself. He took that penalty. He died in my place, and he rose again from the dead as proof that that sacrifice that he made on my behalf was an acceptable sacrifice to a holy God. Christ died for our sins and arose from the dead. And all he's asking us is to place our faith and trust in him and him alone as the only way to be able to be reconciled to a holy God. Not trusting on our good works or doing all the right things or going to the right church or whatever, but transferring our trust from whatever we are trusting to what Jesus Christ already accomplished on the cross. It's by grace through faith. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. You can express in that faith, that decision to place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ no matter where you are. Just by saying, Dear God, I know that I'm a sinner. I believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for me rose from the dead. I trust in him alone as the only way to be reconciled to you. Thank you for the forgiveness of sins and eternal life that I now have. Amen. And if you placed your trust in Jesus Christ, whether or not it was now or before, you need to tell somebody. If you just placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you need to tell somebody. I'd encourage you to write me. Email me. We'd love to help you get started in this new journey. But if you came to know Christ a little long time ago, you need to tell somebody. If you want to be a scribe, disciple, you're an authoritative interpreter of the word of God trained in the kingdom, you need to tell somebody. Maybe you say, well, I need some further training. We'd love to be able to help with that. Online has a number of resources, but we'd love to be able to help you. We have a treasure to be able to share that's more valuable than anything else that's in this world. Jesus says that we need to take that treasure. We need to share it. Understand the message personally, but share what you understand abundantly. Abundantly. The message that Jesus has here for us and for his disciples is that we have a responsibility to share what we know. You say, well, what do I know? Well, you know how to become a disciple of the kingdom if you place your faith and trust in him. So let me go back to the initial question that I asked at the very beginning. How did you become a mature believer in your faith? You see, a mature believer, the scribe disciple, is going to be like the master of the house who takes responsibility for what he or she possesses and shares what they know abundantly. 
As you take that step of faith, it's going to stretch you, but the Holy Spirit's going to enable you to be able to continue to grow you through that process. I heard a cute little story recently about four people. The four people's names were everybody, somebody, anybody, and nobody. There was an important job to be done and everybody was sure that somebody would do it. Anybody could have done it, but nobody did it. Somebody got angry about that because it was everybody's job. Everybody thought that anybody could do it, but nobody realized that anybody wouldn't do it. It ended up that everybody blamed somebody when nobody did what anybody could have done. W.H. Griffith Thomas, who was a co-founder with Lewis Berry Chafer at Dallas Seminary, he wrote once, as water never rises above its level, so what we do never rises above what we are. We shall never take people one hair's breadth beyond our own spiritual attainment. We may point to higher things, but we shall only take them as far as we ourselves have gone. Never do, we will never do rises above what we are. What we are Who are we? What we are? We are followers of Jesus Christ, scribes, disciples, trained in the truths of the kingdom, responsible to take that precious message of the good news to a lost world. That's who we are. How did you become mature in your faith? Wherever you are, let me encourage you to step out in dependence upon the Holy Spirit and stretch yourself, stretch yourself towards maturity. If we truly understand the value of the kingdom, you can't help but share it. You are responsible for what you know. Share what you know this week. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the message that you have entrusted into our care. And thank you that the message about Jesus Christ is not just some trivial message, but it's a valuable message that changes lives. We realize, Lord, that in our own power, we are unable to be responsible stewards of that message. In our flesh, we are weak. And it's only through that dependence upon the Holy Spirit that we're capable of stepping out in faith and speaking boldly for you. Father, I pray that you would continue to do your work in us, that we might be able to do your work in this place. Help us to take that step of responsibility this week. For we pray these things in Christ's precious name. Amen.